What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of All Out War. I am Turner, and I am joined with Jessica tonight. Jessica, how are you? Hey, y'all. Good. <laughs> Doing good. I'm a little sick, so I might be a little, like, froggy, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> Tis the season. Uh, mm-hmm. Whenever there's a, a crazy season change, it always happens. And, you know, us being on the sort of mid-Atlantic East Coast, it's starting to become fall, which is nice. <laughs> we are on episode 162 and we have our good friend Paul. He's uh, con- from cons- Understanding Conspiracies, and he is a he has a YouTube channel. We'll link. We'll put all the links in there. This is going to be a crazy conversation. I don't even want to waste time by, you know, um, you know, spend a bunch of time doing a pre-intro. Um, Rosie's not going to be with us tonight, unfortunately, but it's us and Paul and. Mm-hmm. This is an amazing conversation that we're going to have. It's really fun. It's enlightening. And hopefully it'll get you thinking about some stuff. And it's an angle of the Nephilim that I had never really thought about. And I know, it's crazy. And I think about the Nephilim a lot because <laughs> they were my waking up thing. So, but um, anyways, like I like to say, sit back, grab a coffee and enjoy. You're listening to the All Out War Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. This is episode number 162. We we have a special guest, Paul Stobbs from Understanding Conspiracy on YouTube. This is going to be a fun conversation. This is something that I have to give credit to our friends, John Brisson and Jeremy Stone over at Understand at uh, Buy Their Fruits podcast. They uh, they had Paul on as a guest and I listened and I was just blown away. And <laughs> Paul, honestly, this is one of the, cons- I was saying this earlier, this is one of the pot- one of the conspiracy or truth or things that I've heard. And it actually excited me because I had never heard anything about it before. You know, a lot of things are recycled or rehashed over the same type of thing. And as our listeners know, Nephilim are something that we are very, uh, we've been, you know, they were actually really big in my kind of waking up, uh, my personal story, and um, in the Bible connected to all those things. And then you have taken it another step out with um, (laughs) this whole concept of clowns look like Nephilim. So... Let's start at the beginning. How in the <laughs> world did you get clowns on your radar for connections with Nephilim? It's a it's a long story that I've been trying to shorten with every interview I do. Um, and get it as elevator pitch succinct as I possibly can. But you're going to have to give me at least 10 minutes to explain this. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, so I, I am... A scattershot conspiracy theorist, I suppose we'll call that. You know, I'm a master of, uh, of uh, well, sorry, a uh, jack of many, but a master of one. And I'm, I've ended up on this Nephilim clown thing. But I know a thing or two about all type of conspiracy theories, occult symbolism. I've been in the game for over a decade. I've been doing this for a long time. And, um, you know, I, I came at all this stuff originally from a very new age uh, psychedelic exploration perspective. I was very much in that world. I was an art student. Um, I always had been my entire life. Um, I was studying my fine art degree at Lincoln University in, in, in the UK at the time. I was right next to a, a gorgeous Lincoln Cathedral, studying every day um, and basically um, not glorifying it, but I was I was basically high 24-7, you know. Um, I, was, I was just a stereotypical art student. 
as far as it goes, you know, <laughs> the, 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 a walking brick stereotype in every respect. Um, but I'd, I'd always, I'd always had a creative mind. I've always been a pattern seer, shall we say. Um, it's just kind of built into me to be that way. And I was always seeking for something. Um, just, I, I always wanted to find more in the world than what I could just see. So I, I was always naturally kind of inclined to go down that new age psychedelic exploration route. But I was originally kind of, kind of hardcore atheist growing up originally as, as a young child. I wasn't raised in a, in a religious household. Um, I went through a very secular school system. You know, I, it just was never on my radar to consider reli- religious aspects as anything close to truth. Um, it's just not where I come from. Um, obviously today is a different matter. I am now, I would say a born again, Christian, probably six years now, eight years. I forget how long it's been. I think it's around 2014 was the point. It's been longer than I think, you know, <laughs> uh, and a lot has changed in that time, but um, really the whole cloud connection does come from having that background, which is within the psychedelic exploration. Um, so when I got to university, I was very much coming out of the, the atheistic worldview. I, I had been doing a lot of psychedelic exploration and drugs with, with close friends. And I was very, very much craving some kind of spiritualism, but I wasn't what you call a hippie. Um, I was never, I never fit that mold. And um, I was very logistical about the whole thing. I was really experimenting to, to see clearly what it really was. I wasn't trying to apply layers or religious layers over the top of what I was seeing. I was just trying to take it for what it is, interpret it to make artwork about it, all this type of stuff, you know? Um, and then around the, the same time I was going down this train of thought, the end of the world was coming in 2012 with the Mayan calendar and all that kind of hype was building <laughs> up. And I kind of got swept into that as well because I wanted to know what are these people seeing that's making them make such claims? And that's where the conspiracy aspect of my research began. You know, it was going into this and I made a lot of artwork about it for my university project at the time. And the channel was kind of a result end result of all of that. Um, so, while I was going down this conspiratorial route, going, this is the whole journey to becoming a, a truth, lack of a better phrase, truther, though that goes down many routes, what that means. Mm-hmm. Angle, the Christian angle and all sorts, but um, there's a journey, there's a process, and I started that journey then in about 2010, 2011 period. Um, so I was seeped heavily in occult symbolism, coming at it from, like I said, the Gnostic New Age perspective, while also doing this heavy psychedelic exploration basically <laughs> uh, and they were they were all linked together they all kind of worked hand in hand you know because i was looking i was fundamentally in hindsight i was looking for god i was looking for some connection mm. to something bigger than myself i wanted to see i wanted to know these things um and i'm not gonna lie you know i, I didn't i didn't like who i was then i don't think i was a good person i think i was quite narcissistic self-centered i think i was very much as, as a lot of new ages tend to be uh, very me centric in terms of, I am the God, I'm the creator of my universe type of attitude and the, mm-hmm. the mind frame that comes with that, you know? Um, but that being said, you know, I suppose that's a hint of my testimony there with all of this, but that being said, I, I had some kind of experiences while doing these heavy psychedelic drugs. So I'm not just talking like a little bit. I mean, every single day I was doing something, uh, microdosing LSD every other day, uh, I was taking DMT, not regularly, but regularly enough that it was beyond what a normal person would want to be doing. Um, mm-hmm. I'd already heavily done things like salvia and other potent psychedelics. 
Um, on top of that, I, I don't think there was a single day in an eight year period where I wasn't smoking cannabis five times a day, you know? So I, I, hmm. I was just, I was just in this weird place then. And uh, hmm. I suppose it, in a way it kind of helped me see some things which other people might not have, have seen. So the fractal realm, this matrix you see when you go to this uh, psychedelic realm solidified for me very quickly that, okay, what I hmm. see with my hands and eyes and my senses is not all that there is. And I was very clear from a logistical standpoint, the spiritual realm is real. It's a real tangible place, you know, and we can perceive it by using these drugs. So an endorsement, I wouldn't recommend doing it these days <laughs> <laughs> for reasons into yeah. the time of what I was dealing with, not really knowing much about spiritual warfare I was in this no man's land, open, you know, and, and vulnerable basically. But at the time I was just observing and just trying to understand what it was. And I did see what we what we could call beings there, but it was more a sense that every single thing there is alive and it's it it's impossible to describe in words. This is the problem with psychedelics. Yeah. It, it can be that ability for us to make tangible with mouth noises. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, but for me personally, it was clear that, okay, this is a spiritual realm. And then I understood because I was in that culture, people keep seeing jesters. So DMT jesters or machine elves. Or yes. There's many yeah. other things to describe them, but I suppose I went looking for them in a way. And I, I never saw them while actually doing the drugs, but I did see the place where they're supposed to be. And in, again, in hindsight, I do wonder if I was being protected in some way mm -hmm. or kind of shielded from, <laughs> from having to encounter them in a, in a, such a vulnerable way and um, with no defense whatsoever. Um, and, yeah. but what I did see and what was made clear to me by the end of it was uh, this is a created place and there is a God. So that mm -hmm. set me off kind of having to go then that down that one last route in my conspiracy research, you know, I'd been swimming in all the new age, um, Gnostic conspiracy angles to everything, but I wasn't willing to go down that Christian route. Just, just something was pulling me, holding me back for a long time. Mm -hmm. It got to the point where I can't, I can't ignore it anymore. Nothing else gives satisfaction. Nothing is answering the questions I actually have. Yep. So when I started to go down that route around 2014, 15 period, things started to happen to me, you know, and um, I started to study the word. Um, and that, it, it got to a point after university, just as I was about to finish, I, I was lost. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know where I was going to end up. I knew I just had no plan, no direction. I was burnt out from all the drugs I've been doing. I was I was at the end of my life in a sense. I felt like there was nothing in the future. I've I've no energy, I've nothing left to give emotionally, mentally. I was just done. And I basically asked God in a in a kind of a last moment Hail Mary type situation of please just help me, you know. Um, and I was actually at the time away from home at this um it was my brother in law's uh, stag party at the time. Um, and again, I was uh, after this party was over, I had to go back to university, finish my degree, and I don't know, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I was kind of at this impasse, and I had all this knowledge from this deep dive into the rabbit hole of conspiracy that that also broke me in many ways, you know, because it is a, a mind melding journey of of self discovery and chaos. And it's kind of I did I just I needed some direction, I needed help, so I did I just physically asked for help from God. I gave it all to him. And from that day, um, everything just kind of changed and I started to see some things and started to, everything started to kind of click into place. And I started having these 
spiritual attacks around this time. Mm-hmm. Um, I started getting visions and uh, it all, all this stuff, by the way, is relevant to the clowns. It all kind of connects back to the clowns. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long story. A lot of things happened to get me to the, to the point, but, uh, I was very well aware of this DMT realm, the entities that are supposed to be there, the jester-like descriptions they have, the, the multicolored fractal matrix pattern of this world. And during this period of waking up, coming to Christ, finding God, again, I, I was attacked where it felt like the room was disappearing at one point, completely unprovoked. It felt like darkness was seeping in from every angle. And I thought I was dying. I was paralyzed. And I had to say, Jesus, help me in that moment. And it stopped instantly. And I was back. And that was scary, mm. you know. So these things started to happen to me after I stopped doing the drugs, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, in 2016, I quit the cannabis. Just cold turkey, just stopped. Um, and I've basically lost every desire or addiction I had prior to this. I, I don't crave to do those things anymore. I, I don't feel the need to do them anymore. It all kind of left, but it seems like there was like these demons hanging on to me who wanted me to do these mm. things. Kind of, there's some kind of struggle going on, you know, as I was losing more and more addictions, it, it felt like I was getting more of these weird waves and visions. And it kind of amalgamated into one random night where I got this flash in front of me and I was in the DMT realm again. I recognized it instantaneously and I thought, oh, am I having what, what they like to call flashbacks? Yeah. This is how to describe yeah. it in culture, you know. But it felt like something else because I was there for 10 seconds and then I was back. But in that time, I saw one of the jesters that people talk about. And it felt like I was safe, though. I wasn't in any immediate danger being there with it. It felt like I was being given the ability to see this thing just for Mm -hmm. 10 seconds. And I didn't know why I was seeing it, but I looked up and it was just this enormous, it was a giant it's only way I can describe it. It must have been maybe 30 meters tall. It's not taller, you know, like a, like a wow. giant cedar tree, you know. It was just an enormous thing. Um, it was black and white lined, weird, patterned, kind of like li- liquid polarization effect. If you've ever heard of this or seen this weird psychedelic black and white wavy liquid effects yeah. going on. Um, it, it's, its body was just made of this. And it was its skin, you know, um, in, a, in a sense. I had this huge purple-lipped grin with these glowing golden blue shimmering eyes. You know what I mean? It was just this an insane-looking thing. And a <laughs> creature I've ever seen in my entire life. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And its head was shaped quintessentially. This is why people call them jesters and jokers, because it looks like it has like jester, a jester hat on with multiple uh-huh. horns kind of angling down from it, like spider's legs. Kind of oh, like this creepy. Its, its skull was shaped like that. It's not like it was wearing a hat. It's not wearing mm-hmm. jester clothes. It's shaped like this, and its skin is that colour. You know what I mean? But people at a glance yeah. will say, well, that's a jester wearing multicoloured clothing and a silly hat, but it's it's not. This thing was that, you know, that's that was its form in a way. And then I was back. <laughs> I was like... What happened, you know, and this is, like I said, mm-hmm. I, I hadn't touched drugs in years by this point. I was sober. I was heavily seeped in, you know, studying the words, Jesus, God, and I was just going down the Christian angle of conspiracy and truth. And, you know, I was, I was studying uh, Gary Wayne at the time as well and uh, Netflix his, history, you know, behind this, you know, all the apocryphal texts. I was in that kind of world. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I get this random vision of a giant jester in front of me and I'm back here and I'm, I'm, I just didn't know what to make of it at the time. 
Um, I also had another spiritual attack or encounter in another dream around the same time period where I was being chased by what's called the Hatman entity, a really common shadow creature figure that haunts people and, and mm-hmm. instills extreme fear in them when he's around. And I had my own personal experience with it. But I didn't experience him as a shadowy figure. It was in a vivid, colourful dream. So I saw what he actually looked like, not behind some kind of weak, misty, dark veil. And he looked like he was wearing extremely bright coloured purple overcoat robe with like a purple top hat. But he also had these extremely colourful psychedelic ribbons just blasting from behind him, you know, and very much like a Morris dancer would or the mummers in some way, you know. And it was this familiar look that I had seen within circuses and you know, mm. within that realm and think of the ringmaster of a circus, for example, you know, and he had a cane as well. And it was, it was just, it was so bizarre, but he was coming, it <laughs> was coming for me in this dream. And before he turned up, I was in a park with dead relatives. So dead aunties, great aunties and uncles. And they kind of beckoned me to come to them and, and join them for this tea party next to this, this hedge maze, you know, this Victorian looking garden. And I joined them. I wasn't thinking anything about it. And he was like, it's good to see you again. Great Uncle Albert who died 15 years ago. You know, <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> that's all I could, in the dream it was completely normal. But um, I drank the tea. And as soon as I did, that was it. They were gone. And the scene wasn't as colourful anymore. And it was an empty place, a void. And he was there on the horizon coming for me. This sounds, and I got a this sounds exactly like Alice in Wonderland. It was, it was insane. Yeah, she drank, exactly. she drank the tea. Just, get this. I haven't really. I've never seen Alice in Wonderland. Oh, you haven't. Point. No, I, I wasn't in my consciousness to have these kind of visions or think about this stuff. But um, it, the weirdest part of that dream is, as soon as I drank the tea, and just before you appeared on the horizon, I got a phone call in the dream, and I opened up an old Nokia flip phone, which hasn't hasn't existed since the late nineties. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I answer, I'm like, "Hello," and he's like, "Don't think I forgot about our previous conversation." I'm coming for you now, is what he said to me. Um, and then I have a memory in the dream of another dream where I first met this character. Mm-hmm. And it was at like a festival of some kind, of just chaos, of thousands of people screaming in mud, like a, a stage of some kind, a multi-layers, faceted environment with many mansions and dwellings to go for these people in this chaotic realm to go to and and i was on the stage at one point in front of millions of people and then i'm back in this garden on the phone to this guy and he's telling me i'm coming for you now it's time time to fulfill your end of the bargain and i'm like what <laughs> dream within a dream and this creature's coming after me it looks like a pimp with crazy multicolored things waving behind him and and he has these bright glowing yellow eyes and his face is kind of shielded behind his collar so i don't really see what his face looks like in a way so I run in the dream as fast as you can when you're in fear mode and you're in a dream because it feels like you're running through molasses. You're kind of slowly swimming through the air, you know. And he catches up to me, and I'm I'm adamant. I'm about to die. This, this thing is here to kill me. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know what I owe him. I don't know what, what he wants, but I owe him something, apparently. Um, but then I wrench myself awake, screaming, drenched in sweat. You know, I must have woke the whole house up from the fear, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the screaming and all this started to happen after I stopped doing the drugs. <laughs> and I started to get weird visions, like I said, of, of this psychedelic realm and these creatures that seem to be involved with it. So I had a Ringmaster Hatman entity experience. I had this vision of this giant, enormous black and white jester with huge, with a huge, horrible purple, white serpent-like grin, you know. 
And mm-hmm. I, I'd already, I was very well, well acquainted with the psychedelic realm. So I just had all these things in my mind. And because I had all this research going on about the biblical perspective of the Nephilim and these giants of old and the seraphim angels and the fiery flying serpents related to the seraphim and the watchers, the, the mixing of, of human beings with serpent seraphim was going on in my mind. And one day in 2016, around October time, there was this, the, the clown sightings. 2016 clown sightings and people were dressing like creepy oh, clowns. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Street corners and, and by schools and in forests, some with weapons and just being menacing, just standing mm-hmm. around, freaking people out, you know. And what got me is that every single news station everywhere had picked up on these stories. Even in the UK, every the whole earth was talking about creepy clown sightings and, and the media was mm-hmm. pointing the camera at it. And that's where my first clue was that there's something going on here with clowns. If the media is pointing the camera at something and making a deal out of it, yeah. they want yeah. you to see that. Yep, yep, it's all orchestrated. Yep, yep. It's all planned. And I was, I was by this point, you know, I knew enough to be able to interpret symbols quite quickly. And I knew there was something going on with this, the media showing us these clowns. There's, there's mm-hmm. something about a clown the media wants us to know about. It's not just a harmless bit of fun for an afternoon story or something like that. The really, you know, and it, the hysteria it caused was epic. You know, people were going, people were terrified of this event, you know, and uh, funnily enough, just on a tangent, but it's related. Someone just sent me an article in my telegram group saying that Ronald McDonald was actually phased out as the mascot because of this event. And oh, it was wow. exactly in 2016, yeah. they got rid of him. Mm-hmm because the mass hysteria and the bad image the clown kind of got. (laughs) And I I kind of jokingly said, I'd like to think it's more to do with the fact that I exposed what the clown actually meant by that point. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's why they had to bring it, get it out of the way, you know, and it's too late now. We can't use you anymore. The cat's out of the bag type of thing. But um, after that event, you know, I just had a feeling, I just knew this, this thing going on here. And I had all this knowledge from these previous psychedelic experiences and these weird visions coming off, you know, sobering up basically. And like I said, I, I, I do in true, truer John Brisson fashion, you know, I, all glory to God. I think he's the one who actually uh, kind of gave me this insight in, in a way, you know, he's kind of, he, I asked for help and he's used me in a way that he could use mm-hmm. me to get this information. Now it seems like that's what happened. He showed me what I needed to know and then the, it clicked so I just knew Nephilim, giants, demons, clowns, things in the fractal realm, the fractal matrix is the demonic realm where the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim have gone. Everyone's saying they look like jesters. I've seen one. What's this link between jesters, clowns, and the Nephilim and the disembodied spirits in this fractal realm? So I just typed in Nephilim clown into YouTube. Just a preliminary starting. <laughs> Let's see what comes up. Let's see if there's anything. And I found one video. From somebody, um, he's called the Epic Conspiracy or something like that. And he's not a real conspiracy channel. He's actually just some guy who made a few videos um, mocking conspiracy people. He made his own mock conspiracy video where he talks about the Nephilim. And he's, he describes the Nephilim, you know, as having red hair, pale white skin, um, you know, uh, being giants and so forth and he equates all these things together in a mocking way to say there's only one explanation the nephilim are interdimensional killer clowns from outer space like <laughs> in that kind of 
his history channel <laughs> weird conclusion, you know, he's kind of having a laugh about it. Huh. And as soon as I heard him say that, I was like, you're actually right. <laughs> like something that actually <laughs> hit me, you know, it hit me. And I was like, even though you're, you're having a laugh at our expense, you're, you've actually, you're onto something there, you know? So I started to roll with it and here I am seven years later with a 41 episode series dedicated to it. I'm right. I'm halfway through writing the book and I'm doing the podcast circuit because it's, it's true. Um, the Nephilim did look like clowns and the clown is an intentionally created Western symbol by secret societies to represent there the demons. They so that was, that was going to be my question. How did you, because biblically we're never really given descriptions of Nephilim other than, they were giants. We've got mm-hmm. some extra biblical texts, like uh, yeah. you know, obviously Enoch, um, where it talks about you know they had um, actually. I think is the six fingers. That's actually in the Bible as well. Six fingers yeah. and but extra rows of teeth are mentioned in one of those mm-hmm. two sources. Um, but they don't really talk about like red hair necessarily. They don't talk about their skin tone. Um, you know, so it's usually height and you know, mm-hmm. that they're vicious. Mm-hmm. So with this in your mind, it, to kind of like unpack it, is this what you think maybe their soul would look like or the spirit would oh, look the like? Spirit? The spirit looks like a jester. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's like a psychedelic, multicolored, fractal-looking jester-like thing, which people encounter when they go to these realms in this, this disembodied state. Yeah. Um, yeah. Physically speaking, the Bible doesn't give us much, like you said. Um, it does infer what they may have looked like, though, if you if you can compare it to outside sources outside of biblical canon. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, all of world history is biblical canon. Okay. It's like what people described ancient giants to be who aren't from a Christian background are describing the exact same things that we're talking about in the Bible, which are the Nephilim. So you do mm-hmm. have to go outside of the Bible to get other cultures' descriptions of what they dealt with. And how they describe them to be, yeah. and you fast where you start seeing a repeat pattern emerge. Um, so mm-hmm. most of my study actually is anthropological in nature. It's a study mm-hmm. of uh, folk traditional cultures. So these cultures around the world, every every continent, every country has a folk tradition, and it's usually the, the oldest rooted tradition that they have, and they still do the the rituals. There's many aspects to how each culture would perform their rituals but it usually involves dressing like something uh, mm-hmm. to enact a historical event in some way um, and in other ways they dress like things to be possessed by things they call them ancestor spirits that's a very common folk tradition. and when they yeah. dress like their ancestor spirits they all seem to have the same archetypical repeat patterns they have a uh, pale white skin red lips um, some kind of big, glowing, wide eyes, multicolored, fractal-patterned clothing in some way, wild red feathers or hair of some kind. Um, they mimic themselves to be incredibly hairy. And you see that even though there's stylistic differences between all these ancient folk traditions that have survived into the modern age, they're all generally dressing like the same thing, and they call wow. them their ancestors. Now, that's mm-hmm. not because they necessarily are talking about grandma and granddad here when they call them ancestors. They're talking about the builders of their belief systems and civilizations, the yeah. real ancient kings and rulers that created their structure for, for society. And if you go into, like, say, Gary Wayne's work, for example, he makes it very clear that the Nephilim, once they were created, became the kings and rulers very quickly, just by the sheer nature of their size, who could stand against them in an antediluvian age. 
they very quickly usurp themselves into positions of, of, of leadership. And they will, yeah. let's say, the potentates on the earthly realm of the fallen angel watchers in the heavenly realms, yeah. you know. Yeah. They worked hand in hand along with humans who also created uh, serpent worship cults along with them, you know. And it became this hierarchy of humans, Nephilim, and angels above them. Um, so these ancestor spirits they're referring to are the spirits that are now disembodied, the ones mm-hmm. they dress like to communicate with to bring them into their body. So it's very common in a lot of these ancestor spirit cults, these folk traditions, that they will dress like Nephilim demons to be inhabited by one. They channel mm-hmm. them dressing like them. Yeah. And like I said, um, I have hundreds of examples on my channel, but they all seem to dress the same way. It's some kind of red hair, pale white skin, uh, red lips in some way, and psychedelic colored clothing. And that is what I just described to you, a clown by a Western standard. Yeah. Now they have the more psychedelic ways of representing it, you know, but what the clown is to us was a purposefully designed symbol that takes mm-hmm. all these features from these other cultures around the world and kind of melds them together into something that we consider harmless and for children. It's occulted here. <laughs> We love to occult things in the West, you know, yep. and that's how they've done it. You know, so it's a hidden symbol. You're not supposed to know what it actually means. As far yeah. as we're concerned, it's this thing that entertains children. And that's as far as you should think about how deep it goes. Yeah. Yeah. So the creators of this thing in the 1800s, all the way through the creators of the circus, P.C. Barnum and Bailey, um, the Ringling Brothers, all Freemasons, um, Charles Dibdin, the Freemason who created the first clown outfit in the 1800s, which was worn by Joseph Grimaldi in the shows of the time, the pantomimes of the time. They knew what they were doing. I, I believe they yeah. knew well what they were doing when they created a clown. You know, they yeah. they hijacked it from the Commedia art movement of Italy. Um, Harlequin himself, who worked with the clown in these Harlequin arts, is literally a representation of wild men of Europe, which are Nephilim creatures. That's what his character is. So he is a demon through and through. Uh, the clown was just a boring character originally, but in the 1800s, he was made the star of the show in British pantomimes. Um, and he was turned into a demonic figure, which was more like Harlequin originally. It was modeled after the demonic figure of Harlequin. So literally speaking, clown is a representation of a demon called the wild man. But symbolically speaking, if you don't know that kind of history, it's still been hijacked and adopted and twisted into being this visage of what we call a Nephilim spirit. Wow. Yeah. All, yeah. All and I, again, I'm, I'm currently on chapter 15 in my book which is going through the entire history of clowns, where they had to nice. come from, start from ancient Greece all the way down to, you know, <laughs> now. And it's, it's, a, it's a wild ride. That's so but, much to unpack. <laughs> yeah, but what I'll say is, if you want to just ignore what I'm saying about, you know, linking all these cultures together and there's a conspiracy to mold the clown into this image, just the very basic, not even hidden roots of, of Harlequin, the very first clown, is literally a representation of the wild men of Europe, which are mm. Nephilim, hairy, big-footed demon things. That's literally yeah. what they are. So, it's, so it's, it's, it's and there's the so much there's so much proof that we see in history, even just with um, well, um, talking about like we were talking just talking about the six figure thing. There's like ancient drawings of. of these creatures with six fingers. Yeah. Like you can literally see back in history and measure things to scripture. And it's like, it's, it was actually real. <laughs> it is actually real. Yeah. Well, it's like, for example, the whole Greek mythology, for example, yeah, the, um, mm-hmm. the, the Titans versus the gods, you know, of Mount Olympus versus the Titans, the Titanochomy, the war between the, the fallen angels and the giants, basically. 
It's the same story that's mentioned in the Book of Enoch. It was the punishment in which the angels had to endure was for their own children to kill each other and try to usurp their own parents, you know. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) it seems like the whole Greek mythos is literally just a retelling of that story to still make the angels come off good at the end were the saviors who killed the evil titans. It doesn't mention that. Well, it does mention this, but they don't bring it up in the fight. We made the titans. (laughs) We were the ones who made them exist to begin with that created the problem, but they're also the solution to the problem. It just seems like a bunch of uh, pagan lies to try and, like I said, make the the fallen angels come off as the good guys in the end. And I kind of view (laughs) history in this very very cynical about the history in that way. I just see it as a a lot of of lies and laid upon layers of lies, but the archetypical truths are hidden within it, you know. Uh, Yeah. The Clash of the Titans is the story of of the Titans killing each other just before the flood, you know. And then there was that period of time before the flood where humans started to mess with their own DNA and try mm-hmm. to be like Nephilim. The mixing yeah. of kinds was going on, you know. And that seems like once the big Nephilim were all dead, you know, and killed each other, it was like another attempt at the angels who weren't locked up, who didn't mate with women, to continue the corruption of mankind and therefore make mankind start corrupting themselves instead, you know. And then we get all sorts of hybrid creatures being made, centaurs, mermaids, sirens, all that type of thing started to appear in that period of time. And then a huge flood comes and now you've got fish people who can survive a flood around, you know, and then that corruption can then continue after the flood. It becomes a whole mess. And I do believe those people who corrupted their DNA are also some of the spirits on the other side of this veil, along with, Mm -hmm. you know, the demons. Speaking of just like, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, sorry. I just had, I had two things. Yes. Um, one is in reference to Harlequin, um, because mm-hmm. the modern reference, the modern representation of Harley Quinn is a is a woman, and you know the I don't know if you've watched the, you know the Suicide Squad and all of that stuff. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Everything. So yeah, and you said that originally Harley Quinn was basically adopting this these um, kind of you know wilderness guys that were just rough and then they became like the center of like they were refined in a certain way and presented to the public do you see the transformation of harlequin to bring in a whole nother representation like a new way and does like for me like the first thing i thought about was like the whole inverse of everything we have this rise of transgenderism we have you know, that Baphomet spirit that's both male and female, and obviously that's coming from that whole realm. Yeah. Do you see a connection there at all? Absolutely. Um, it, this this is the thing about this theory. It's, it's kind of a tautology in a way. It kind of brings everything quite neatly together, and it does explain a lot of things we can actually see happening in the world. You, know, you mentioned the whole, um, I like to call them the, the multicolored collective, this group of people that exist in our society today who wave this flag around and there's many people who come under that banner. But mm. um, what I find is the people who identify themselves with the multicolored collective hive mind type um, extreme left wing mentality, mm. uh, they do tend to dehumanize themselves in a way where they end up looking like clowns. They dye their hair at extremely bright multicolors. They oh, pierce themselves. They cover, themselves so in, they cover themselves in tattoos. They wear outrageous, colorful clothing. If you go to, through the drag community, they literally dress like Nephilim. I cannot explain it in any other way. They make wow. their eyes look enormous. They, yes. <gasps> they wipe their skin up. They give themselves oh. extremely big, wide mouths. They give themselves extremely large heads. And with the hair, they, they wear the most wow. alien, outlandish, psychedelic color clothing you can imagine. 
and they're a, kind of a blend of of male and female mixed together, which goes with the androgyne um, fallen angel mythology as well. Yeah, and they are themselves embodying the same thing. Now, this this is the catch. So I mentioned in these these cultures, these folk traditional cultures around the world, they knowingly dress like the thing to be possessed by the thing. Mm -hmm. They do it mm -hmm. for a specific purpose. In the West, we kind of had this weird inversion going on where we believe we can dress like demons to scare away demons. We have the, <laughs> we have the opposite weird viewing off. Our own folk traditions, the wild man tradition of Europe, which is rife all across Europe and um, in the Western Hemisphere in general, you know, the, the, the main the Anglosphere, shall we call it, we kind of have this tradition, it's ancient, where we do, we dress like wild creatures with horns and, and big sharp teeth, and we do it around the Lent period. So it's a highly Christianized mm -hmm. thing. It's mm -hmm. just, it's, it's, it's a moment of extreme excess before fasting. But we also believe we're doing it to scare away the bad demons before, you know, the, the turning of the seasons type of thing. Yeah. It comes with mm -hmm. harvest as well. A lot of that's involved with it. Um, and I think we have it wrong in the West. We have it so wrong. I think it's the most disturbing perversion of how this works ever. You don't dress like things. To, dressing like a demon is not going to scare away a demon. I'm sorry. That's just that's just naive stupidity as far as I'm concerned. It's the, it, I cannot fathom how people think that makes any sense. Yeah. Wouldn't it welcome it? Like, well, that's what I mean. Like, Everywhere else around the around the, the earth, you know, who practices this practice of dressing like demons knows i am doing this because i want it to inhabit my body yeah. i'm calling it forth i am summoning it you know i'm dressing like it to evoke it but it's just us in this western way of thinking which you've brought into the modern day that um dressing like something isn't a big deal it doesn't mean anything you know so mm -hmm. when you see all these people who manifest multicolors in the way they mutilate their own bodies i do think what you're seeing there is the, the spirit within them manifesting physically mm -hmm. but I also in a sense i think people who then emulate that indirectly dress like a demon and end up bringing more into them it's kind of a, a an endless cycle of, of yeah. possession and and opening portals to this thing by dressing like the thing to evoke the thing being ignorant that that's what you're doing doesn't change the outcome unfortunately and this then is like you, you have to be careful about what you choose to wear and 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 it's it's just not something we consider a big deal in the modern day in the West specifically. Yeah. I think it's kind of funny, you know, with coming off the back of all this rise of this extreme liberal Marxist uh, anti-human worldview that kind of rise with a multicolored collective. At the start of this very year, the fashion world has adopted clown core yeah. as the latest trend. Now, it looks outrageous when you see them walking down the catwalk dressed like Harlequins and clowns. It really looks insane. And you're not going to see outfits like that come into the outlet stores. Right. But what will trickle down into the stores that me and you would buy our clothes from is clothing inspired by these insane outfits you see on catwalks. And mm -hmm. they're basically getting people to dress like clowns this season. That's the in fashion. <laughs> and you have to wonder now, knowing about this symbol, what it truly means and what it means to dress in certain ways what the true intention behind that really is. You know, it's, you have to think about it, man. Yeah. yeah. So I had one, I had two things. So that was one, which was amazing, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but I want to go backwards for my second one, because um, you had mentioned the seraphim and this is kind of the origin of like the parent for the Nephilim, the one parent yeah. other than, you know, the human aspect. Can you describe the the seraphim? Because I think that's an important, and I, they're mentioned in the scriptures, and a lot of people don't understand 
what they look like, what their function was, and um, and then I've noticed, and this is something I'm sure you've noticed in your research, is that throughout history, from the beginning, there's been the worship of the serpent. Like every single culture of every single you know generation has had a worship of the serpent at some capacity. So yeah, can you can you help us with that one? Sure. So Sarah, Sarah, a seraphim angel. Um, there's a hierarchy of angels. If anyone's got into the biblical theology, they'll understand. You know, angels themselves are actually just a class of angel right at the bottom. What we call an angel, but a seraphim is of the classes of angels. It's right there at the top. It's basically right next to the throne of God. It is that one of the highest classes of angel. It's supposed to describe, I believe, as um, flying around the throne of God, singing "Holy, Holy, Holy" for eternity. Basically, that's what it's. Its job essentially is to do. It seems like, in terms of being like a right hand man for God, the seraphim were, were the guys. They were the most trusted, the most beloved, closest to him. The only ones who could get close to him by virtue mm-hmm. of being, having the wings to shield their face and their feet and their body from his glory, basically. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, it seems like, from what research I'm doing um, lately, that angels kind of have a job to play in the creation itself now i'm not saying they make creation god creates everything including the angels but it seems like he created angels to be a part of the literal making the creation happen in a sense i think it's described that the um the thrones and the wheels are holding up the firmament for example that's their job they're immovable they stay on spots that's where they remain and they hold up you know what the throne of god is on top of the firmament itself hmm. so it seems like all angels kind of have a job to play and then we have what we call and this is described enoch as the watchers and they had a role to play you know and i do believe he entrusted his closest angels to the job of looking after his closest creation which was humanity and mankind um now this is where it gets a bit controversial i suppose this is where i would be considered a christian contrarian in many ways but i do believe there were, there were people just before Adam and Eve in some respect. Um, I, I believe uh, Gary Wayne calls them the people of day six, as that's described. Um, a lot of this comes from an reinterpretation of Genesis 5 and Genesis 6, where it says God created man and woman, plural, told them to go forth and multiply and subdue the earth. And then in the very next verse, it says God created Adam and then put him in the Garden of Eden. So it seems like they're talking about two different classes of creation there. We don't know the time that happened there, but what we do know from other sources outside of the Bible is there seems to be a period of time where beings described as angels ruled over masses of people and were worshipped as gods. So there's something going on in this really far ancient past that we have very little record of, basically. And there's a thing called the Papa Vo from the Mesopotamia, sorry, the Mesoamerican cultures. And they describe a being, an entity, which is literally just Lucifer. It's a prideful, fiery serpent ordained in jewels, beautiful, this beautiful giant creature with serpentine feathered features, Um, very prideful. He basically went against God, wanted to be like God, but then he was kicked out of heaven for doing that, basically. And it's the story of Lucifer, but he's described as basically watching over the people of that time. He was a God among them, and he wanted to be the bigger God. And it does seem like this is basically the story of the Watchers, isn't it? You know, they were watching over humanity. They were there to kind of be caretakers for us in a way. But at the same time, they kind of had the luxury of being gods among men. Mm-hmm. They were mighty, giant, incredible-looking creatures that humanity was just in awe of. You know, I think they kind of 
pride being the ultimate sin, they kind of gave into that pride that, you know, and it says a third of the angels agreed with Lucifer in the rebellion. And I think the rebellion is literally rooted in this idea that God chose Adam over them to be yeah. king of the earth, basically, when they were the first kind of, you know, it's like, well, why, why shouldn't we get to be, why shouldn't a serpentine being like ourselves get to rule? Why this stupid ape creature that you know is subservient to us why should why should we now have to bow down to them when we are far mm -hmm. superior to them is all this kind of stuff happening and i think this is what in, inspired the incursion you know and i think the watcher class angels were the seraphim angels they were his closest you know the ones he held and trusted the most to watch after his people you know his creation um and they're all described in every other culture as fiery serpents flying serpents um if you go to australia for example this is uh, one that's seldom talked about because everyone always talks about quetzalcoatl in america the flying serpent feathered serpent is the most popular oh, one yeah, yeah. they have like seven different names spread all across america <laughs> from north to south but they describe these huge enormous flying serpents well in in china they have dragons Mm -hmm. They have their own like, fiery, serpentine, wavy dragons all over the place in their mythology. They have a mythology of um, four dragons. Basically, <laughs> it's like a sympathy. They, they've twisted the flood myth to be an evil god did it because dragons tried to save mankind. That's basically <laughs> their mythos. And it's these four dragons tried to give humanity water because of a drought. So they went to the big god who was called the Jade Emperor in their mythos. And the Jade Emperor was not really bothered that humanity was suffering. It was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, I'll send rain tomorrow. But he was distracted by this this musician that was playing something for him or something like that. So the, the dragons went away and weeks passed and no rain was sent by the big god. So they said, why don't we do it? You know, so they because they were water serpents. They were gods of the sea. They were assigned by the Jade Emperor. It even says the Jade Emperor says to them, "Why aren't you where I sent? Where you're supposed to be? Why aren't you in the sea where you you belong?" So it's kind of like they had a job to play in the creation. They had a role. They were in charge of the ocean, maybe the tides or waves or something. You know, they as spiritual mm -hmm. beings in the with a foot in the physical world, they had a role to play to make sure the creation is happening. So they decide because they are in charge of the ocean. In a, in a sense, you know, they've kind of been given that authority to have power over it. They make it rain. They send water into the air and give it to the humans. The Jade Emperor is furious, so he crushes them under four mountains, these four dragons, and they, they rivers spring from these mountains and they create the rivers of China. So it's basically, <laughs> a, flood, it's basically a flood myth involving dragons being the good guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. If, you to, if you go to Australia, they have their own fiery flying serpent called a rainbow serpent. And they believe the rainbow serpent created all the grooves of the mountains and the valleys by waving through them, you know, with its big, enormous body. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's worshipped as, as basically the big god. You know, the rainbow serpent is, is our god. And they have their own offspring on the earth called the Wanginas, who also look like human-serpent hybrids, who <laughs> go around and create civilization on a personal level with mankind and help build all the buildings and the mounds and the homes with them and, and teach them how to fish and how to do all these things, you know, and take a lot of credit for basically creating humanity and guiding them to have their civilizations. That's why they're called ancestor spirits in these cultures, because these are the mythos they have, and they all involve... A, ja a dragon or a flying serpent of some kind across every single continent wherever you go it doesn't matter Is even that... in, in in europe we have literal fire breathing winged dragons um, whales flag is a red dragon you yeah. know 
it's still here today. It never left. You know, the myth is of, of you know, St. George hunting dragons and all these type of things. It's, it's seeped into our culture on every level. You, you can't hmm. get it. Is the, is the Australian, is that through the Aboriginal tribes? Yeah, um, all of them. I mean, there's like 42 tribes all across America. Australia's huge. Yeah, it it's is. like enormous. But they all kind of have a similar myth with the different names. Um, serpents in the sky, weird, glowing, big-eyed, white-skinned, cra- crazy-looking creatures on the earth with big, long bodies and patterns all over the skin. And then yeah. they have humans who basically learn everything from them. At the, at the level below. I wonder if uh, I, w- I wonder yeah. if there's any credence to the uh, the Queen's a lizard. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's well, not now, but <laughs> Gary, Gary Wayne does say this is a lot. A lot of this has to do with bloodlines of the Nephilim. You know, um, oh. a lot of people argue that this is is bad to say such things. It's justifying, you know, separating humans from other humans and saying you have a different blood to me, and that's where it gets murky. And it's like, how do you? Yeah. What's the end? Or that type of thinking and even I wonder you know it's kind of dangerous to go down that path of you have mm-hmm. the bad blood I have the good blood it just sounds weird doesn't it but a lot of people theorize that these people who put themselves into position of power today in these kingships these monarchies are the descendants of people who still maintain this special bloodline that goes back to the Nephilim and the fallen angels the divine right to rule I have angel blood in me <laughs> therefore I should be the king you know that's kind of their thinking Yeah. Um, but I think Today, it's probably so diluted down, if that's true, that they look just as human as yeah. me or you, not any more special. Mm-hmm. Well, we we all know that uh, the real <laughs> blood transfusion is from the king himself, not some exactly. ex-king yeah. okay. angel. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's a salvation issue today. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you were talking about these things being colorful, it was just, and we were talking about Lucifer and being, he was just beautiful and shiny and colorful and um i've always i've I've had so many spiritual attacks and issues dreams and in person and it's always been what you referred to i think you said uh the the dark veil or the shadow veil or something like that you you described it really well but um but it's always been like dark from what i have seen and um Anyway, it's just so interesting to think like we, we look at the d- demonic as dark and, and ugly, but they fell from heaven. They're, they've got this beauty. Absolutely. And, and it's just so. It, it says clearly it was in Bill Marvel for Lucifer himself poses an angel of light, you know, yeah. Satan himself. Yeah. And it tells yeah. you explicitly, you know, these are beautiful creatures. The angels are at least, their offspring mm-hmm. were not. They were they were terrifying. I mean, can you yeah. imagine what a human and a snake mashed together would actually look like? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's <laughs> you actually think about it, and um, what they look like clowns. This is what we're going to get into, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's actually a terrifying to behold. And you know, I want to make clear as well, you know, in terms of biblical texts, and um, the Book of Amran is was found with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is a vision I think from I think it's from. Um, Noah's grandfather or something. I can't, I can't remember who, who Amran is in the, in the context. I've written it down, but right now I'm blanking. But either way, he's one of the, the ancient antediluvian figures who has a vision, basically, where two angels come to him. And they are described explicitly as having faces like an adder. That's how they describe it in the book. Mm. They have faces like a viper with, with colors like an adder. So a black and 
patterned creature with angular, sharp, flat, wide-grinned, serpent-like faces, you know. Mm-hmm. And these are the angels' call. I think he calls one of them Belial, and the other, um, I think it's basically talking about Michael, but he gives it a different name. Mm-hmm. So it's Satan together, you know. Now, uh, mm-hmm. I think Michael's an archangel, but it seems like Satan was with him, and it's described as both having serpent-like features. And I do think angels, maybe they weren't all serpent towards serpents, but it does seem like they had animalistic features, not human in a sense of like, because obviously we are created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. They weren't necessarily. They seem to have more earthly animistic looks to them in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, you have four living creatures described. I think it's by Isaiah in his vision, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's literally lion, a goat, and all sorts of things mashed together. And I do think yeah. a lot of a lot of angels just had animalistic features of of some kind, and when they mate with humans they pass that animalistic feature mixed with human-like uh, features. And now I'm not here to get into specifics of how they mated with humans. You can argue that we, <laughs> we do know it did happen. However, they managed to do that. They did do it in a way. And uh, one thing I found that was interesting is, um, I don't know if you want to hold any credence at all to the to this extra-biblical uh, pseudographical text, but it's supposedly in 2019 the Vatican released a book called The Book of Lamech of Cain. Mm. and Leviathan. Now, again, I don't know, I don't, I'm not going to base my theology solely on this book because it's one of those you have to take it over with a pinch of salt. It's the it's the story of um, Lamech from Cain's lineage, so not Lamech on, on um, Seth's side. It's the bad, the bad Lamech, you know. And in this story, the only thing, the takeaway I can take from it, because it's, it's, a, it's a horrible story about just how brutal it was in the antediluvian age. People were just murdering each other left, right, and center, and um, monsters were were everywhere. Giants were everywhere. Drinking blood and just just raping women. The angels were doing their thing off in the distance and also just corrupting mankind any way they could, you know. But Lamech's wandering around trying to find out why how all these people appeared. Basically, how if Cain, you know, who did Cain mate with? He's trying to find answers to these questions and he's going around. And one of his main questions is, why do we all have white skin? Now, he doesn't mean like me, us, us, you know, this pinkish white hue. He's, he's talking about why do we look like vampires? Why do we have mm-hmm. deathly white, porcelain white, gray mm-hmm. skin? You know, And it's the mark of Cain is described as having this deathly white color to them. And it, um, so I find that in, that's my takeaway from that. That's interesting because people have talked about the mark of Cain ad nauseum. Yeah. And they've come with all sorts of not only racist theories to justify all sorts of heinous actions as to what the mark of Cain is, but mm-hmm. this offers a completely opposite perspective that it's actually incredibly white, deathly vampiric skin was the mark of Cain. That's how you knew them, you know. They were, it's as though they were already dead spiritually and physically, you know. They look like monsters in that respect. And that makes sense for the clown theory, I realise, because if you're getting fiery, multicolored, fractal, patterned, serpentine-skinned, psychedelic-looking creature, <laughs> angel things, mating with a human being that has porcelain white skin, and you mash those two things together, then you get the basis of a clown, pale white skin, wild, fiery red hair. It's all kind of, it does kind of make sense. So, And we do know it was the daughters of Cain that mixed with um, the, the angels on Mount Hermon, you know what I mean? That it was The watchers went with the daughters of Cain specifically. Hmm. Um by the sixth generation of Jared, wasn't it? I think it was. So it's kind of, that answered a lot of questions for me. I was like, well, how, why porcelain white skin? Why is this the most common motif we see everywhere when people try and 
represent demons in some way or in their ancestor spirit cultures. You'll find it all over the place, from Papua New Guinea to Africa. Um, every con- It doesn't matter where you go, you know, there's tribes that do it now. They've caked the face mm-hmm. in white. They put a red dot on their nose and red polka dots all over the skin. And they give themselves like a big wig of fiery red feathers everywhere. And it's kind mm-hmm. of the, trying to emulate something from the ancient past that they have a memory of, something they worship, something they consider a standard of beauty, of godliness, you know, of, mm-hmm. of, of, of brilliance, you know. And it's, it explains why we have these cultures that, for example, um, squash their babies' heads to make them more conical in yeah. shape. Yeah trying mm-hmm. to emulate something that they consider a standard of power and beauty, you know, it's, and mm-hmm. you look at the skulls found all around the earth that represent these Nephilim creatures. They did have big, long, thin skulls. It, mm-hmm. Everything's elongated like a snake. Everything is just yeah. stretched out. Yeah. And that's what these creatures look like. You know, the, the psychedelic pattern skin of a serpent, you know, they would have had this. And this is the polka dot colored clothing of a clown in the West, you know, and the frills mm. around the neck, for example, a clown ruffle is a reptilian frill, which reptiles still have today in Australia, for example, you know, it's just a, a mimic of that. It's a symbolic reference to the clown makeup with the big uh, brow ridge up here just elongates mm. the skull feature. It makes it look a bit wide and longer. But not only that, when you have a big black outline there and then shade it all in blue and close their eyes, it looks like they have giant blue eyes. You know, it's, it's like the Nephilim would have had. Uh, the slit down the eyes, a very common thing. Then that would represent a serpentine pupil. Also, if it's a cross as well, it's idea is it's a dead spirit. It's a dead thing we're representing. Mm-hmm. Using symbolic reference. Uh, the wild red hair, again, it's just a feature picked up, most commonly described of these Nephilim wherever they're encountered. Um, in North America, the, the Paiute Indians of Lovelock Cave were haunted by cannibalistic giants. They describe them, crazy wild red hair, very tall, creepy big wide mouths, ate us, and they had white skin. It's, it's always the same. It doesn't matter where you go, same description, same veneration. So that's why a clown usually has a red wig of some kind with a big, usually a gap in the middle so the skull looks longer again, you know. It, this is by design. This doesn't happen by accident, you know. It's... You could, as as a, someone who doesn't believe necessarily, you know, the whole things can just come out of nothing, like the whole Big Bang stuff. I don't think the clown <laughs> just out random chance, you know, all the yeah. symbols match yeah. perfectly to the descriptions of these Nephilim creatures. Uh, clowns often were stilts because the Nephilim were giants. Uh, oh clowns often were big shoes because the Nephilim had big feet. You know, it's a, it's a caricature. It's a designed mockery reference of everything is just points towards Nephilim features. It doesn't matter. Um, one common one is that the red nose. I have a few theories on this, right? right. So this, this is very speculative, but it's fun to speculate. Um, and it comes off the back of this discovery of the white skin that they may have had from the, from the human genome of having incredibly pale skin. But it turns out there's actually a consequence of being incredibly pale. Um, and it's called rosacea. And hemochromatosis. Okay, so it's an inability to break down iron. It's called the curse of the Celts. Um, And you'll find it's very common. People who have the curse of the Celts, incredibly northern European pale people, get bright red blotches on the skin, which could be considered polka dot in nature. But also they get this thing called a rhinophyma, where the nose goes bright red and grows. And it gets bulbousy and big and painful and full of pus, but it's huge, big red nose. That's what you end up with. And it's only a feature prevalent in people who have incredibly pale skin, which the Nephilim would have had, white skin, red hair. 
So it's possible that as they got older, they developed a big bulbous red nose, like you would see a clown nose today, hmm. you know, the modern, right? So that's a literal scientific reason as to why they would have a red nose. That is awesome. If you want to, if you want to get symbolic, these things were cannibals and they big, big, wide serpent mouths. You know, clowns have big, wide red mouths because um, they have snake features. A snake can open its mouth wide enough, to, you know, to dislocate, to eat its prey. Mm-hmm. And these humans, hybrid creatures, would have had big, wide red mouths that opened up really wide, you know, with fangs mm-hmm. more than like human sharp snake teeth. Um, so while they were eating people, it's very likely. Have you ever, have you ever seen a toddler eating spaghetti bolognese? <laughs> spaghetti yeah. and meatballs. You get it. Have you seen a mess that yes. they make around the yeah. face? Well, they, you they, get it at the top of your nose. <laughs> they would have got it on the tip of the nose, right. yeah, yeah. You know, so it's possible that that's what it was a reference to too. But I found a more scientific explanation was probably likely the, the genetic default of rosacea and rhinophimus as they got mm-hmm. older. Probably got big bulbous red noses from that. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the connections just keep going. I mean, what a fun one is the clown car. Now this is gets just gets really symbolic, okay? But. Uh, Again, I don't think this was an accident. Why is this a common routine for clowns in a circus that you have this tiny car and then a lot of clowns start coming out of this vehicle, don't they, in, in a comedic fashion? Well, as a car or a vehicle, symbolically speaking, especially when it comes to dream symbols, represents a body. Hmm. Your vehicle, your means of transporting yourself through the world is what a car would represent in a dream. If your car breaks down in the dream, it's usually because in real life, you must have some suffering with something physical, like my body isn't working. I'm ill and I can't move through the world like I would like to. Usually if you dream of a car breaking down, it's because something's probably wrong with your actual body in some way. Um, And your mind kind of symbolizes it that way. Well, a vehicle, a car full of clowns coming out, you know, think of demons. We are legion. It's literally demons coming out of somebody's body. It's simply a reference to that happening on the stage in front of everybody with nobody realizing that that's what it actually represents. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe this is a good segue to get into circuses and just why. <laughs> I do. I do want to make one observation. Uh, Cause you were talking about the different cultures and you were talking about yeah. the Aborigines and the Africans, whatever. And I thought about the Egyptian culture and how, you know, they worship the snakes. They used to have these headdresses with the snake, oh, yeah. know, the cobra. And oh, yeah. um, and then I started thinking a little bit about Moses interacting with the magicians, and mm-hmm. one of the things they did was their staff became snakes, and yeah. then he throws down his staff and it becomes a snake and eats their snake, and uh, it just was sort of like to me like connecting the serpent, you know, this whole seraphim, and then God's deliverer throwing down his snake is going to eat your snake. In other words, you will not be able to defeat God's plan. The, the, the God will always <laughs> conquer two against one. He will still eat you, <laughs> you know? Well, absolutely. Yeah. The, the snake, it's, this thing, snakes themselves aren't inherently evil. Right. You know, I, I, I'm not like a snake is a creation of God at the end of the day. And I don't mm-hmm. believe all the seraphim rebelled. You know, it, there's still yeah. some snake-like fiery serpents on God's side as well. So it's kind of, you know, and if you, that's the side you want to be on if you want to win. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so symbolically, that is there as well. It's like you might have your snakes, but my snakes have God behind them type of thing. You know what I mean? It's, it doesn't matter how, yeah, it's it's all there symbolically. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, t- in terms of, of like, let's say the circus. Yeah. Yeah. We have to now go into the history of how the clown became what it is today. Like how, how we ended up 
with this symbol? You know, who created it exactly and why Why was it inserted into, into society? And it's all because of the, um, the creative industries. You know, so we understand today, for example, you've probably seen plenty of videos throughout your time of the Illuminati music industry or uh, mm-hmm. the, the Illuminati film industry. You know, it's all satanically run by these secret societies. And it does seem like entertainment is kind of their realm. It's where they like to control. It's where the magic happens. It's where mm-hmm. the, the mirrors happen type of thing. And its its roots are in creative arts. You know, it, it seems like it's a symbol, just like we have our symbols today in art and music that represent the demonic. It was still happening in the 17th century, the 16th century, the eight. There were still people who were hijacking the creative arts of the time to implant their symbols into them to manipulate the people. So that's where people's attentions were going to the stage. So we have to go to. Um, I'm going to quickly summarize the fall of Rome here and Greece, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> prior, prior to the 16th century, where the Comedia Larts of Italy were big, we had not really clowns didn't really exist as we call them today. We had maybe buffoons or um, outside fourth wall breaking characters in Greek theatre before Aristophanes, but they were kind of stood on the side of the stage and made fun of the actors, but the actors wouldn't hear them. It's like they didn't exist. There was some kind of ethereal weird thing on the sidelines that got to mock the stage, you know, and make the audience laugh. And that's kind of as far as clowning went through Greek theatre. But in, in Rome, in Roman, just before the collapse of Rome, they had these things called sanios, which were kind of like mimics. They could move their faces into weird positions. And, and think of like uh, Jim Carrey, for example, as a prime example. They could mimic people. They could mock people. They could kind of just contort their bodies and faces into funny shapes and things, like kind of like a mime in a sense. And they were like street performers and entertainers of Rome, um, it's where we get a lot of our names for clowns from, like Stupid, for example. They're named after a, a clown called Stupidus in Roman theatre times. It was like a stock character. Huh. Um, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Mor- M- Moron is Morionis or something like that is where we get Moron from. And it's basically a fool, a bumbling idiot type of thing. And you find out, out of this Roman culture, you get things like um, personal performers being hired for the rich people of the time. That's kind of as far as it really went. Um, but you didn't have a clown. You didn't have what we would call a clown. Just just stock fools, in a sense, you know, who had kind of like they would mimic a particular character of the time, a rich person or a, a, a soldier, let's say, or something, or a, a particular influential person who was popular among the people of the day. That's kind of what they would do. They would um, mimic and mock people who were well-known as celebrity in the minds of the public. Um, but then after the collapse of Rome... And kind of the the Catholic Church kind of kind of banned performances in Europe. They kind of had a lockdown on stuff like that. And there was literally like a, a good thousand year period where there wasn't really much work for performers in that sense, you know. And they kind of regressed into personal gestures for kings. That's kind of how that happened, you know. Mm-hmm. And only the rich and powerful were, were allowed to have the privilege of performances because the common people weren't allowed to do that because it was, it was evil and sinful and of the devil type of thing, you know. Mm. But the person with power naturally had their own fools and jesters and personal performers for themselves. Um, but then you, you would find what would develop slowly is a lot of these families of troops of actors from these stages of Greece and Rome did travel Europe after the collapse of Rome, and they kind of spread out all throughout Europe as far as Russia. And they put on traveling performances, basically. And it was called the Comédie de l'Art movement. That's what it became. And they would set up a stage in like a, a town square and they would put on a little improvised performance with stock characters 
that all wore masks and it was kind of be a bit of improvised fun and the people would throw money at them and that's how they would make the money. Then they moved to the next town and keep doing that. As this progressed, um, maybe again, it took a long time to get there, but by the 15th, 16th century, this is when it was really in swing and getting popular again. The Renaissance was happening of, of culture, you know, people kind of allowed to have fun again in that sense, you know, and it became very popular very quickly after that. And you'll find through their travels, they picked up a stock character called Harlequin. They created a, melded a character called Harlequin, modeled after the devil characters of medieval theater and these performances, you know, the typical devil, but also modeled after the Wilderman traditions, which they saw being enacted everywhere they went. They found this weird old pagan folk tradition where everyone dresses like a wild man beast. And they kind of incorporated that character into the movement of the Comedia Arts because they knew wherever they went, the people could relate to this character, the Harlequin, uh, the Hurley Cane, the Hairy Cane, the Hairy Man, you know, that's what it was based after. The Wild Man was basically what it meant. It's also based off someone called Helikins. Uh, Helikins is a French myth mythos based on the Wild Hunt mythos. And basically he is a giant with a club who roves from village to village with a band of demons. That's what Helikins <laughs> oh my is doing. This comes out of a French medieval mythos, and it's said that a, a 10th century monk encountered Helikins. It's written down in this ancient manuscript, you know, and it says, you know, he encountered this beast with this club with his demons, and they decimated the village and so forth. And hmm. this kind of mythos rises from this idea. So Harlequin is named after Helikins, basically, and he is a wild man with a club. So Harlequin was dressed in this tattered robe with a black mask covered in hair around the edges and um, looking like a beast, basically. It had this big club, which is called the slapstick today. And that's what he dressed like. He dressed in these tufts of hair were kind of glued onto this ragged robe. And they had multicolored patches all over his skin, basically. And it's kind of loose fitting. It looked a bit wild. It looked crazy. But Harlequin was, was basically, he enacted within the play the role of, of demon. He was the magical being. He could change the scene by slapping his stick on the floor. He had a, mass, a magic stick, okay? Mm. And it seems like not only was he based on this northern European um, wild man mythos, but he seemed like he had a lot of characteristics brought up from the Mediterranean. So he had a lot of things like um, um, Mercury or Dionysus with, it, with his... Um, he had his, what's it called, the caduceus, with the snakes going up the wand. That's kind of what the slapstick was also based on. He was Harlequin was very fleet of foot, very fast. He could do backflips and somersaults, almost like he was flying, like the god Mercury. You know, he had the very similar features to him, very jester-like in, in their actions. And also Dionysus had the thyrsus, which is the same thing as the caduceus, but his had a pine cone on top. It was a phallic symbol, mm -hmm. you know, and it seems like all these strange symbols of ancient gods from Mediterranean and the wild man uh, mythos demons of the north and it became Harlequin and he was adopted into the Comédie de l'Arts performances because they just knew everybody can relate to this character everybody has a connection to this mythos of the wild man so they'll know who Harlequin is when he comes on stage and he gets to be that rascal the one who mocks all the people on stage, the one who mm -hmm. causes all the trouble, the one who, you know, has the magical powers who can just change things instantly and people can't keep up with him. He makes the rude jokes with his stick, you know, he would pretend it was his phallus, basically. He would stick it up people and do all sorts of things. He was the rude one, you know, he was the he was the devil, the demon, basically, mm. in the show. Now, 
that was by the end of the, the coming out of the medieval period, 16th century, 17th century. That's kind of who he was. But he started to change as the years went on and as the art form developed. And he started to actually start becoming more of a, a hopeless romantic rather than a, a a wild man demon. He started chasing after Columbine, the daughter of the rich uh, aristocrat Pantaloon, and his love interest would come from. The comedy would arise from him trying to run away with Columbine and Pantaloon and his servant clown would chase after him, try and get them, you know, and they would do all sorts of funny things to get away and the scene would change and so forth. But the focus became more as, as the tradition moved further north into into the UK, um, Harlequin would become a character where that's, that's what the show was about. It was about the love interest of Columbine and Harlequin trying to escape from clown and the rich man, basically. And his character was no longer this weird demonic thing. It was more of just a, a funny, hopeless romantic, just trying to get his love, love interest away. And he kind of, he kind of left the wild manness, which left a void. Basically someone had to fill that role. So this is where clown comes in. So clown up until this point was based off of, um, clown is a British version of Pedrolino, who was a character in the Comedia art movement. Pedrolino was just the servant of the rich man, Pantaloon. Nothing special. He wasn't like, he was He was a part of the zanies. He was part of the funny guys, you know, but he wasn't exactly like a clown as we would call it today. He wore very plain white robes, had some black pom-poms, a black hat with some pom-poms, but didn't look colourful or crazy. He was kind of like a sad, pathetic character. He loved Columbine, but she didn't care about him. And that's kind of where the comedy came from. Let's laugh at Pedrolino, the sad, pathetic loser who can't get the girl. That, that was his role as the clown, you know. But in Britain, it was different. The clown kind of became this brutish, crazy-looking monster, basically, to replace what Harlequin was originally supposed to be. So they kind of took the boring Pedrolino character and turned it into the clown in Britain. And that's kind of where we get the modern clown from in terms of acting like the original Harlequin. There was a switch around the late 1700s, there was this switch of the main character is no longer Harlequin as the demon, now the clown is the main character as the demon, and Harlequin is now just some background character. So there was this random switch where basically the clown in spirit became Harlequin. Yeah. But it was now called clown. So the demonic roots switched into the Pedrolino character, which became clown. So that's basically the historical understanding. Now this is where things get really weird so we're talking the turn of the century. This is where, this is where <laughs> it gets really weird. weird. Yeah. Yeah. Conspiracy gets okay. So <laughs> around this time, this was a pretty well established routine. Okay, nothing had changed in like three hundred years. Everyone dressed the same. The routines were the same. The scripts were written. The jokes were pretty much the same. Nothing was changing. Okay, but there was this um, period. Just literally one eight zero zero. That time, the eighteen hundred. You know. And there was this rising star called Joseph Grimaldi in British theatre around Drury Lane. And um, there's this, this one section in London where there's these theatres that were just popping off at this time, you know. And the Harlequin, the Harlequinade, or the um, the pantomime, kind of came, was this show that happened every Easter season, basically. And at the end of the mm. pantomime, which was like drama, would be the Harlequinade, which would be this 
the clown, the Harlequin, Columbine, Pantaloon, the stock characters, the big chase scene would happen. Chaos would ensue like Looney Tunes. They would hurt each other, decapitate one another, hit each other with hot pokers. It'd just be silly nonsense for like three hours straight. Uh, like Looney Tunes style where they would kill each other, but then the next scene to be unharmed and they carry on with the madness doing the next gag. You know what I mean? Um, and there was one character called like in Joseph Grimaldi kind of grew up in the industry. His father was a performer in these things. His grandfather came from Italy and was known as iron legs. And he would be a brilliant acrobat who would perform for the, the Kings and Queens of the time, you know? So he kind of was born into this and his father who moved to Britain and became a dance instructor and got into these theaters basically had his child and raised him in the industry. Kind of like you had Disney does today, you know, with children. <laughs> like he kind of raised his child to be like him and forced him to be a clown, basically, to be in these shows. So he got him being the monkey. So he, this little kid would dress like a monkey and be the animal in the show. And he would be brutally beaten by his father, just had a horrible upbringing, just a brutal upbringing in the industry. You know, all the money he was paid, his father kept all this type of stuff, you know, his dad would just beat him mercilessly. And so this, this poor kid grew up and then eventually he became the clown. He, he took on that role. He was so good at it. Like it was ridiculous. Everyone loved him. He was like the ultimate celebrity of the time. Wow. Okay. And people get in awe at the way he could perform the clown character. And it's because of him and his performances that clown became center stage, the main character that everybody loved. And then something happened. He had a boss called Charles Dibdin who owned the theatres of the time. And like I said, this was well established. Nothing had changed really in 300 years except for this clown became very popular all of a sudden. And Charles Dibdin decided, I'm going to make a change. And he changed the outfits these people wear. So Harlequin now had the tight leotard on. He had the, the, the tight black thin mask with the weird sailor's hat thing. That we, the more modern version of Harlequin we know today. He didn't used to look like that. Like I said, he had loose-fitting tufts of hair attached to him, very ragged, um, a big beast mask on. That's gone. He's now this live, thin, jester-looking, angel-looking, hopeless romantic with a rose in his hand-looking guy, you know, like a sailor. He's like thin and perfect silhouette, you know. Um, and then Clown got his crazy costume that we know of today. And it looks psychedelic. Like the 1800 clowns are terrifying. Like... <laughs> You think the scary now, the way they used to dress originally in that time period is, is it's like a, a huge bulking man wearing a baby's bonnet, basically, a multiple <laughs> baby's outfit, you know what I mean? And there's something uncanny and weird when you, you see a fully grown man dressed like a baby, there's something weird about it, you know? And that's kind of what was going on then, that's how it looked, but the multicolored fractal patterns appeared then, that's when it happened then. Lo and behold, I did some digging, and Charles Dibdin is a member of the Leicester Lodge. He is a Freemason through and through, <laughs> and a high-level one at that. Of and course. what do you know? He owns the entertainment industry at that time. You know, wow. he owns all the theatres. He's a big player. He writes all the music for, like, maritime music of the time and the wartime music. He seems to be heavily involved in the politics of the time as well. He's an influential man um, who's within the craft, you know? <laughs> And he decided to hijack the symbol of a clown. He saw that the clown's very popular. He saw Joseph Grimaldi. People love him. He's, he's an idol. So what did they do with their idol in the industry he owns? He dressed it like a demon mm-hmm. and got people venerating the image of a demon, basically. And uh, Joseph Grimaldi has been kind of 
given he's the patsy in a way he's kind of like he's the grandfather of modern clowns he created the clown as we know it today he's the one all modern clowns are based on but he didn't create anything mm-hmm. he just put on the costume and did the show he was just a very good performer you know it was the freemason who invented the outfit of a clown you know and then <laughs> and what do we know we know in our research freemasonry is just a continuation of these ancient antediluvian serpent cults yeah yeah to just carry on throughout the centuries and have the people continue the agenda don't they and yeah i do these these men are privy to the information of how a demon looks i do Mm -hmm. think they have that knowledge i think they commune with them i think they work with them intimately i do think these secret societies are the physical foot soldiers for the spiritual disembodied spirits who they work with you know Mm -hmm. they they get told by the spirits what to do they go out in the physical world and do what the spirits tell them to do. The spirits, in turn, answer to the angels above them. They sold the hierarchy never changed, you know. Right. Just the method of how they do it continues. So, the clown is literally an invention of of a of a creative industry mogul who mm-hmm. was a Freemason. He literally inserted into this traditional art form the image of a clown into a character who acted like a demon. He made yeah. it dressed like one, two, basically. And people loved it. He made it popular. He made people love that kind of thing, you know. And then from then on, like I said, all of the clowns were based on Joseph Grimaldi's, you know, design. And then this has been circuses got incredibly popular through that turn of the century, up to you know, the 19th century to the 20th century. Yeah. This is where yeah. you get things like uh, P.C. Barnum and Bailey and their combined circus, for example. And you'll find that they actually joined together, all of them Freemasons, by the way, I think it was P.C. Barnum who came up with the phrase, um, there's, a, there's a patsy born every minute or something like that, or like there's a, there's a sucker born every minute or something. Like, he's oh, like, kind yeah. Of like, you know, I think he came up with that phrase, you know. He, he did, yeah. And these, uh, these were money-hungry, vicious people, you know. They had a, mm. these, these performances were put on just to get rich and to disseminate more of their propaganda, I believe, as Freemasons. That's how they did it. And circuses, let's break it down, you know. You realize now, in terms of symbolism, you have a ring okay you have, so it starts with a ring and you have the ring leader don't you so the lord of the ring which is solomon so mm-hmm. they love solomon in freemasonry he is an idol they mm-hmm. try and rebuild solomon's temple during this time period when money was everywhere pre-great depression era they were just building solomon's temples everywhere in america they were loving it the money everywhere building their own versions of solomon's temple they love solomon so they mm-hmm. have in the circus, the ringmaster, the ringleader, the Lord of the Rings, Solomon himself, the hat man, okay? But not only that, hmm. within any any lodge, any Freemason lodge, only the grand worshipful master is allowed to wear a top hat. He is the only hmm. one to wear a black top hat. And that's how you know he is the boss of that lodge. Well, the ringleader is the one wearing the top hat in the performance of the circus. So it's just hmm. a, copy, a copy of the lodge's. And there's this whole thing that happened. These two circuses combined with each other, these P.T. Barnum and the Ringling Brothers. And they put on a big show called King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Okay? And it, they've traipsed it out all throughout this Come time on. period. Traveling all across America, putting on this performance, you know, full of demons in, and animals. It was a huge spectacle. And it's even described, you know, as, and it's their words, now we can put our performances that we would normally see in these small lodges on a grand scale. Hmm. They transferred their rituals within lodges into the performance of the circus. To the public, to yeah. The, yeah. The public, exactly. They externalized their things, but it was all hidden on the, the occult symbolism of fun for the family. But you know, <laughs> you have 
clowns in a circus, demons running around, basically, symbolically speaking, you know, and you have the ringmaster, the ringleader who orchestrates the demons, just as you're finding in a lodge, you have the grand masterful worshipful master wearing the top hat, orchestrating the ritual within the lodge. It's just the same, it's a translation. That's all it is, you know, on a grand scale, buried under symbolism. There's layers of symbolism. So now the public can pay for their rituals, basically. (laughs) It's quite clever when you think about it. Um, but this, symbolically speaking, it was all perfectly designed. I mean, that, that that show itself, everything about it was Freemason owned and created. All the costumes that they wore were created by companies who make all of the clothing for Freemason lodges. All the backdrops were created by Freemason affiliated artists who made all the backdrops for their own rituals in the lodges. It was a full Freemason effort to put on this, this circus show specifically about King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And these were the first circus performances when you think about mm-hmm. it. You know? And yeah. then from then on, it's just kind of organically developed. And now I don't think you even have to be a Freemason to, to, to adopt the clown imagery. It's people do it unconsciously now. Yeah. It's kind of embedded into our culture as yeah. a harmless thing to entertain children, but it's roots of satanic to the core. Occult. Mm-hmm. Everything about it is perfectly designed for the occult to be used by the occult so they can openly venerate and dress like their gods, their demons, without the public realizing it. Yeah. This is why Shriners all have a clown sect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they all claim it's for the kids, it's for charity, you know. <laughs> you know, they have the cover story, but yeah. what they get to do now publicly is dress like a clown. And what do they what are they doing? They're doing what all these other ancient folk traditional cultures do around the world. They're dressing like the thing to allow the thing into their body. Oh, crazy. And if you think about it too, like clowns just mock people, they yeah. make fun mm-hmm. of them, they do these really, you know, it's it's over the top and humiliation to people, yeah. you know, they pretend like they're going to, you know, they put something in a bucket and it, you think it's water and it's not, it's confetti or whatever. And so it, it's, yeah. you yeah. know. It's like high emotion, either happy or scared, like it's like laughing or you've hit it on the on the head there because there's this idea um i don't know if you've heard of jerry marzinski before but he was a um a psychiatrist who worked with schizophrenics in prison systems and he basically worked intimately with these people who had voices in their heads and he came to the conclusion you know that these these creatures are, are are real they're conscious they're not just voices in people's heads they all have the same agenda and the same plan and they mm. communicate in the same way. And it's like they're actually a real consciousness in a, in a way. He yeah. describes the effects of these schizophrenics is that they get worked up into ultimate fear or a frenzy. And then they're just drained of all the energy instantly. And they're kind of mm. like just practically dead. You know, yeah. can't move to sleep. And there's this whole idea in like the Gnostic way of thinking, the, the Anunnaki way of thinking, the Archon way of thinking that we are kind of like food energy for these spiritual entities you know, and the mm-hmm. energetic fires, they, they cause fear because they feed off the fear energy type of thing. Now, I do think there's something something going on with demons where they do in some way gain something from us and our extreme emotion. Yeah, We generate something that they desire from it. I don't know if it's energy or food to them because, like I said, they don't eat anymore. They still hunger and thirst, mm-hmm. but they have no body to satisfy any of those cravings. You know, they are disembodied spirits. They're in dry places, as it's described in the Bible, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the, the form of sustenance is our fear or extreme laughter as well. Now, think of the film, for example, Monsters, Monsters Inc. Inc. Yes. What they, 
<laughs> energy and they convert to laugh energy at the it's... end, which is more powerful. Now it doesn't matter that this, this, I've noticed this. Okay. So this is where my theory comes into it. It's kind of, I've seen my toddler screaming his eyes out in, in anguish over something and then very quickly turn to laughter in like a switch. It's mm-hmm. weird to see a toddler do that because their emotions are all over the place. You know, the, the happy, the sad, <laughs> you know, they can't really can't regulate it, but it's a fine line between laughing and crying. There really is a fine line. I, it, it's practically the same thing when you actually pay attention to it in, in such extreme emotional terms. It's like laughter and crying can very quickly just switch to the same thing. And I realized, like I said, a clown, it's one of, one of the two things, isn't it? It's either going to make you laugh or it's going to make you feel extreme fear. Either way, it's a good result for the, the clown because the person who's dressed like a clown is now embodying the spirit of a demon and then it'll go up to a person, make them laugh or make them cry. It doesn't matter. The demon who's embodying the person dressed like a clown still gets the energy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what it creates, whether the person's petrified of a clown or thinks they're hilarious. The energy mm-hmm. is still harnessed for the, the demon within the person dressed mm-hmm. like it. Well, that would even make sense because you'd think as like laughter is a good thing. But if it's coming from an evil place, like that's like what you said before, Satan is the angel the false light that like absolutely they're like they they want to grasp like emotion from an evil place mm-hmm. yeah yeah in your so com- humor, isn't it you know put down humor like you said the uh, the mockery type humor yeah. uh, that seems to be the root of a clown that's what they do you know they, they if they're not mocking themselves which is relatively rare they usually the comedians are a good example they're mocking other mm-hmm. people kind of where they derive the, the humor from. I mean, there's a difference between, you know, wholesome laughter and, and, yeah. and <laughs> there's two, there's, there's two different types of laughter. We know that I think one's from God, one's of the devil. I think it's clear to see it's, it's where the roots of it comes from. We, we know and we're, we shouldn't laugh at something, <laughs> right. we, we, you know, we right. know when that happens, um, we feel convicted, don't we? Mm-hmm. I, it's almost like then, the, you're coming into agreement with them uh, oh, at, at yeah. a level, and I think that's a, a, that does give them power. So when you come into agreement with this dark entity, you know, with their motive, with their desire, with their plan, um, you're giving them permission, and and it, yeah. it empowers them then to have freedom to continue to work through. But you know, the scripture is pretty clear in James. It says, "Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you." So when we submit to God and then resist the devil, we're not coming into agreement with him. In any mm-hmm. way, so my whole thing is we need to hunt clowns down, and we need to. No, I'm just kidding, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was going to say too that you know the, we were talking about secret societies and entertainment and all of that. Well, the Illuminati it literally means illuminated ones, and that's that's kind mm-hmm. of the figurehead of the entertainment industry. You know that everyone points to, even if that is not the actual unseen hand that's operating stuff. It's just maybe the figurehead, but. Yeah. Um, but Illuminati, Illuminated Ones, Lucifer, Angel of Light. I mean, it's all, it, mm-hmm. it, it all connects, you know, in that way. Oh, Gosh, I, was, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Go no, you go ahead. It's okay. I was just thinking about, like, I, um, with my study, I talk about a lot about, like, um, Bible prophecy. And I've talked about Nephilim a lot on my Instagram page. And um, I, I see as uh, Hollywood almost being, um, like, Satan's prophecies because he has to mimic God and everything he does. And so he has his own prophecies through (laughs) 
Hollywood. And it's just like when I started studying this stuff, there's so many things that clicked when I see things in movies. And now like sitting here with you and thinking about the movies of clowns, like now I'm like, oh, I need to go rewatch that because <laughs> like there's so many things that are clicking in my head even without watching it you know like the yeah. the greatest what is that great show the great showman yeah that was all about the circus and like there's already stuff in my head i'm like oh my gosh the song yeah <laughs> yeah well i haven't i haven't actually seen that i probably should have seen it yeah. I, don't, I don't really have time to watch films anymore or yeah, like, yeah. Kind of. <laughs> it's the symbolism that it's just like it's yeah. intense what's out there yeah, I mean, one the main example everyone always points out to me is is it Stephen King's it, oh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. which literally is an interdimensional demon, spider demon of some kind that manifests in whatever a person's fear is the most. A clown is one of the children's particular fear, and it's how it likes to manifest the most because it seems like most people are scared of clowns, so it's happy to manifest that way. That seems to be the gist of why it, it manifests as a clown. But it's it's a it's a fear sucking entity it feeds off of fear you know and that's where it gets energy and its ability to manifest in the physical world enough to eat and feed because that's what it wants to do it wants to eat and feed which it can't do in a disembodied form so it Mm -hmm. makes generate enough fear so it has enough power to manifest into the physical world to gain that physical lust that satisfaction of its its hunger you know which is Mm -hmm. demonic to its core that is the nephilim modus operandi that's what it that's what possession is it's it's the desire to have a body Mm-hmm. to satisfy its lusts that it can no longer satisfy with its, in, in its disembodied form. You know, so I don't, I don't believe um, a demon can truly possess a human as in own them. I do think it can influence a human which is dwelling in to do things it would rather you do for mm-hmm. its own pleasure. And I think it can experience things vicariously through us, which is why we need to personally resist those temptations lest we feed the demon. You know, it's that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's where it comes from. And obviously you can, you can cast them out in Jesus' name anyway. We have that authority in this, this is another thing I want to make clear, you know, they, these are a defeated enemy. Mm, these yes. are things we should be at the end of the day. Um, everything they do is just to get us to a point where we don't realize that we have the power and the authority given to us through Jesus to cast them out. You know, they hate, mm-hmm. that. They hate that. We have that ability. It's just not optimal to possess a human who figures that out, you know, because they'll have to go back <laughs> into the dry places again. And it's just, it's just a losing battle. Uh, which is why I think we have agendas like transhumanism, for example, the 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 push to create a perfected body which they can inhabit, so they can be back in the world without the need to possess us anymore. I think that's mm-hmm. where it's all leading in terms of the grander conspiracy of things. If you want to just get into Nephilim alone, whether they look like a clown or not is neither here nor there with that kind of thinking. But mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's all connected, you know. And I think yeah. the whole them looking like clowns, I think, is good to know because it's kind of a know know your enemy situation. Yeah, I think yeah. it's kind of um, people who take DMT, for example, who encounter these jesters, they call them archetypes. They think it's their own consciousness projecting an image of a clown to themselves in order to tell them something deep and profound about themselves from the collective consciousness of humanity or some airy-fairy nonsense like that. You know, what mm-hmm. I'm trying to say is, no, these are literal entities with a history who are there for a specific reason because of stuff that happened in the real past and you're talking to them thinking they're just your own imagination. You need to know yeah. who your, you need to know who your enemy is and what they look like. If anything comes to you looking like a jester or a clown in a spirit realm, you are communicating with a Nephilim spirit through and through. That's exactly mm-hmm. what you're communicating, you know. And you need to know that. Um, you can't be so foolish as to think that everything in the spirit realm is your friend. That's just so naive and stupid. <laughs> That's kind of how they. I was there, you know, and I, I get yeah. it, you know. 
that's how they see it though they really see it as well it's there to teach me something when all it does is abuse you and mock you and and, mm-hmm. and bring you down and destroy you and yeah it wants to kill you that's his end goal it, it hates you it's jealous yeah. of your body and it doesn't it's the thing like people think the dmt realm is a special place it's a higher place it's a better realm than this one we are physically right now the truth is it's the pipes it's the wiring behind this world it's, yes. it's mm-hmm. the yeah. system it's the thing it's the stuff behind the scenes that you don't need to know about that makes this happen that's where they're stuck they want to be here <laughs> They want to be with us. They they want a body like me and you. They want to inhabit this realm that God created that's wonderful, where they can experience things, have a life, an embodied, Mm -hmm. real embodied life. They don't get that. That is so true. That is That's what that realm is, you know, and these people who take DMT think they're going somewhere special, where (laughs) creatures are that can teach them something profound. It's kind of like they're losers trapped in a miserable lesser realm, and you're Mm -hmm. going there thinking you're going to a higher realm, getting higher wisdom from these idiots. (laughs) <laughs> these these weirdo creatures, these monsters, and it's it's just it's so backwards, and yeah. it's kind of people need to realize you're here now. This is it. This is the creation that God gave you. That He gave you a life to live within. Seize it. Take it. Don't let these demons steal it from you. You know, mm-hmm. don't let them think that this is lesser in some way. That this isn't worth it. Don't let the Gnostics make you believe that you are yeah. trapped in your flesh prison by some cruel, vindictive God. No, this is the blessing. This is the moment. This is your one chance. Take it, you know, take it now. And don't pay attention to demons. They lie. They lie to you. That's the point, you know. And the DMT realm is not a special place, is what I'm trying to make clear here. Mm-hmm. It's just the other side of this coin that we live on. It's it's this world. Our perception of it is not there because could you imagine seeing that all the time? You won't be able to live. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. horrible. That place is chaos. Yeah. It's it's chaos. It's just code. It's just form. It's just pattern. It's just constant movement and swirling. Imagine having to spend eternity there. They hate it. Yeah. <laughs> it's we get we're lucky if we take DMT. We get to come back in ten minutes. Right. They don't. They, mm-hmm. they don't get to come back. They, they will come back with you if you let them. You know, yeah. they'll come back into your body if you don't have the Holy Spirit in there. Something else will fill it. Yeah. A hundred percent. Basically, and and when you think about it too, like the it's the DMT realm that uh, your descriptions are perfect because it's literally the spirit realm sans God. There is no yeah. righteousness, holiness, love, peace there that's from God that emanates from the presence of God Himself in the spirit realm. It's it's that part where He's separated from right now, and they're just roaming, just wandering aimlessly through, and. Um, <laughs> And and it's just people. I think people the the, the fact that they called. We've done episodes on DMT and psychedelics and things. In fact, John Brisson from By Their Fruits came on, and we had him on as a guest for that. But they call it literally the higher realm. <laughs> like <laughs> like it's not higher. It's going down. You're you're transgressing yeah. away from God even further. You know. If you think about us, you no, know, as embodied beings, we are. I think it's, I've heard people describe it like we're fourth dimensional beings who perceive the third dimension in our bodies. Now imagine going even lower than that. Right. That's what the DMT realm is. It's, it's like a two dimensional realm. It's, it's flat essentially. It's an, it's just an image. It's not, there's no up or down or left or right. It's just a constantly swaying flat realm in a sense, you know, like a, it's like a very cartoonish place in, in a mm. sense. It's, and even then there's no bodies there. There's no embodiments because there is no third dimension like like we have in that sense. You know what I mean? The 
the, the uh, everything's here is perfect symmetry. Everything has a half. Everything is in twos. You know, we have two hands, two legs. It's a, everything's emanating out from a toroidal center in some psychedelic way because that's God's design, you know, but there, they don't have any of that. They literally, they're just consciousness kind of floating in this weird, horrible, ever-changing, melding realm. And I think that's why they're known as legion or like a hive mind in a sense, because hmm. the consciousness are kind of just blending into each other and they just kind of, they don't have dis, what's, the, what's the word? Dissociated personalities. There's no differentiating between one another there. It's kind of, it's, it's chaos. It's hell. Yeah. That's where they are, you know, they're in experiencing uh, and they hunger and thirst and have no means to satisfy it. Yeah. You know, they are in hell. That is the mm-hmm. definition of hell, you know. And like I say, you best believe if you give them half a chance, they're coming with you. They're coming back here, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. They are legion. Yeah. They as many as they can will come in with you, you know. <laughs> and the thing, like, they, don't, they don't care. Like, they're already damned. They'll, they'll do whatever they can, you know. They'll fill up that little car. Oh, yeah. Uh, exactly. Hey, you're listening. Well, Paul, this has been incredible. Like my, I mean, just this conversation alone, I think it's just, it, I didn't know where it was going to go. I knew it was going to be enlightening for me in particular. Um, but uh, is there anything that you'd want to add? Like it, to, as we kind of wrap things yeah, up? Yeah. Or? So, I, I will say I, I've only just kind of surface level given you the overview of the whole theory here. If you want, <laughs> if you want like aesthetical details and going into specific cultures, just go to my YouTube channel. I've, I've, I have hours of stuff there where I go into the specifics. You know, you want to see what I'm talking about. I've shown it all there. I can only give you, like I said, a quick overview in, in this in one hour, 45 minutes, but there's literally hundreds of hours of, of breaking down specific cultures and their specific histories and their specific ways they dress to represent the specific clown. It's all there going across every continent. So go there for all the deep stuff, you know, the, the, the details. But um, this is just an overarching explanation. And I think another mm-hmm. fun one maybe to close on, something a bit more close to home I think people can relate to, is something like the music industry, for example, the modern entertainment industry as it is today. I think one pattern I've noticed, which fits in with my theory, is that if you want to be famous and you want to make it in the industry, whatever industry that is, be it modern arts, music, film, interpretive dance, I don't know, any creative arts industry out there that exists, uh, fashion is another one, all you need to do is dress like a psychedelic clown demon and you will be elevated. <laughs> you will you will like and it's not by virtue of the spirit realm elevating you it could be that but the people who run the industry will see you dressing that way and they will want you in the spotlight hmm. okay they want you there because they want other people idolizing you and therefore emulating you more people dress like clowns the better more hmm. portals, more portals being opened for demons that's all it is that's all it is wow. so you'll find you know, most people in the music industry who are the rock stars the top in the charts, the ones who hit it big yeah. are, are put everywhere and are, for some reason, miraculously appear overnight on the radio and are number one all of a sudden for the next, like, ten weeks and are played incessantly. All of that stuff, all by design, you'll find they all dress like a clown in some way or colour themselves up or give themselves yeah. the white makeup with a red lipstick or psychedelic fractal-coloured clothing. And people think, oh, well, that's just what musicians do. No, it's not. I'm a musician. I don't dress like that. <laughs> it's the ones that get put in the <laughs> I certainly do, you know, and yeah. 
for by design they want people to be inspired by that they want future artists to mimic it because they believe well, that's just how you have to dress to be famous you know mm-hmm. and it kind of perpetuates the same image and it gets more and more people dressing like demons and acceptance yeah. and then people just accept it They're exactly just- yeah I see. and this is where we how we got to where we are in today's world like i said with the whole drag queen phenomena and all that kind of thing you know and the more collective and their fashion sense and it's all there all connected so i guess that's well kind of loosely rounded off but if you have any questions anything you want to say go for it <laughs> jessica you got anything i the questions that i did have like i wrote down and you just as we went along they just started they just all got answered so <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, i'll say that's a good sign then I, I i i did well i think i did well yeah <laughs> <laughs> so paul when do you think that your book will be finished uh, well, like I said, I've got a planned 34 chapters and I'm currently finishing off 14. So I'm halfway there. Okay. And I've been writing since about March. So I'm going to guess the book will be ready halfway through next year. Okay. okay. Uh, then obviously um, I have to go through um, copywriting, get people to read through the draft. I'm going to look for publishers who can help me out with that as well. And um, mm-hmm. maybe the back end of next year, it'll be ready to go published on the shelves or whatever platform that gets sold. But I'm, I'm not rushing it. You know, I want it to, it, it's, it's, I've got about 70,000 words down already. You know, it's a big book. It's, it's mm-hmm. going to be a thick tome by the time I finish because it's, it just, just covers so, so much. It's, it's a very <laughs> big, broad topic. And yeah. the first, the first 10 chapters are literally an abridged version of biblical history from from the antediluvian past to now you know and just to make context there for why i'm even talking about clowns at all you know so yeah. the whole right. breakdown <laughs> of the nephilim and the seraphim and the creation and all that's kind of the first part of the book um but people have written 600 page books about that alone and i tried to condense it down into 70 or something like that yeah. you know? <laughs> so i've done what i can there but um i'm like i'm currently right now writing about the um the creation of the clown in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And then the next chapter is about the circus and secret societies, which we talked a lot about today. So that's yeah. the next yeah. chapter. Um, and then once section two is boxed off where I talk about DMT and all that sort of stuff, then it's a, the section three is going to be 10 chapters, basically going through all of the cultures of the world and their folk traditional um, ways of venerating demons. Um, so this is going to be a meaty book. Yeah. Um, I've, like 300 references already. It's one of those type of things. Um, I'm, I'm my target, personal target, is to have at least the first rough draft done by July next year. Okay. Fully okay. Done. Then awesome. refine it. Uh, you know, so that's, that's the plan. So yeah. w- w- keep us posted. We'll, I'll keep an yeah. eye out for like that. And when you get it done, we'd, I'd love to have you come back and we can we can take a deep dive, deep dive on maybe one of those particular chapters or something. But I do have one question for you. And this is kind of a uh, – oh. you may not even be able to answer this. So it's okay. fine. If you can't just say, I don't know. But okay. based on all of the, like, because you, you literally are taking the history of the clown and your its origins, anti-deluvian, the, the, the seraphim, literally the actual resemblance of the fallen angel. And you're, what do you see going forward as we progress through time here? You know, like, I don't know how much time we have left. I mean, honestly, it feels like things are going quick. But uh, what do you see, like, moving forward how is the clown and how is this this whole presence going to impact culture moving forward what do you predict do you have any ideas well first of all i think it already has 
I think from 2016 onwards, everyone in terms of a meme has referred to the world as a clown world uh-huh. ever since then. Mm. Uh, since the sightings of the clowns, which is, let's bring it full circle. You know, when the media was pointing to clowns suddenly appearing mm-hmm. and saying, you know, the 2016 clown sightings, it was a symbolic meaning. It was referencing the ne- the Nephilim spirits are returning in full force. I believe that's what the symbol was. Mm. It wasn't for us. It was for the initiated to recognize. Mm. It was kind of message to the initiated saying um, the demons are coming back. The Nephilim are coming back. We're, we're doing what we can to open more poles for them to appear into the world again. Hence the 2016 clown sightings. You know, that's what they really were. That's what. That's why they were pointing the camera at them. That's why they wanted people to see it, you know. And then from that day, you had the Trump presidency. All sorts of crazy things happened. The clown world meme, Pepe the Frog meme became a big thing, you know. And the world did mm-hmm. just seem to get more, more clownish from that day. You know, we did see a kind of a, a digression into multicolored facets and the rise of the liberal left-wing ideologies dominating things. It feels like the pendulum might be swinging the other way now. I think after five or four years, you know, six years of that kind of dominance of that political sphere, we're seeing the other side kind of have a kickback. I don't fall into the left-right paradigm myself, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. If I was to observe all of this, I would say we're going to see a lot more ridiculous things happening it's going to get weird things are going to get get freaky you know um it's going to get weird i think you'll see the clown become a lot more popular in terms of um, fashion senses Uh, we're going to see it in the media a lot more we're going to see people kind of glorifying the clown in a sense they're going to consider it actually like a a messenger of how we should act and how we should view the world um, you know, like an irreverent way of viewing existence. I think it's sort of, you're going to see people adopt some more of a clownish attitude towards the reality. I think it's kind of, it's the spirit of the Nephilim. That's what it really mm-hmm. is, you know, and that's how they view the world as, as a joke, as a, you know, as, as something to mock, as something yeah. to laugh, as, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. so you are going to see more of that. It started in 2016. It's already started. Yeah. You, know, you, you can, now, now I've said it, you, you can observe the world has gone mad. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's insane. It's getting, you know, uh, so I don't. I can't predict the future, though. Yeah, I, I could. I couldn't yeah. tell you. You know what's going to happen tomorrow. Never mind what's going to happen in ten years' time. You just, you just don't know. You just don't know. Now we have look- we have one more symbol under our belt. Let's just put it that way that we recognize. Yeah, yeah. I just looked up like the um, clown fashion and like couture clown yeah. fashion just pulled up, and it's like all over Vogue and all over. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, someone released a video recently, which um, seems to be doing the rounds everywhere. It's actually from 2019, fully enough, but it's the Pope surrounded with clowns in the oh, yeah. uh, in his main throne room with that evil, satanic-looking Jesus thing behind him, whatever the hell yeah. that is. <laughs> <laughs> Just surrounded with um, with jesters and clowns, a circus doing a performance in the Vatican, you know what I mean? And you yeah. have to think about, symbolically speaking, what that actually means. Oh, my goodness. You know, think about it you know demons in the supposed house of god you know but i'm not going to go mm-hmm. i mean right. it's kind right. of a, <laughs> symbolically speaking it, it's a joke isn't it it's a laugh they had the laughing at us that's what they're doing yeah. there. well as in the days of noah so it will be at the coming right. of the son of man so you know uh the nephilim, the nephilim yeah. yeah and i think 2016 was the first symbolic hints that the nephilim are returning yeah Oh, man. Wow. Well, this is 
exciting times to live in for sure, especially if you know Jesus <laughs> and you trust in him for salvation, because at the end we win, and that's the good news. Uh, yeah. I would say if you don't know him or trust in him for salvation, you should today, right now, just ask him and pray for forgiveness of your sins, because it, it's a clown world, and uh, you're going the way of the circus if you don't. <laughs> you know, the big top isn't going to be fun when it's uh, when it comes to its end. Oh. Man, well, Paul is awesome. Thank you so much for for joining us and having you know spending so much time with us, unpacking all of this with us. Uh, my mind has been blown multiple times. Yeah, my mind won't like won't stop right now. Like I'm about so many things. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Uh, uh, yeah, um, I hear I hear that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that a lot. Again, uh, at the end of the day, I'm all glory to God. I I, mm-hmm. I just I'm just a passing recognition guy. I just saw the things that were already there, you know, and I'm just. <laughs> Just pointing to them, basically. Um, Amen. Again, no, no fear. Don't fear. It. You know, they're a defeated enemy, and we we have the authority over them. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. uh, just that, that's the that's the real message at the, at the end of all of this, you know. And it's just a symbol. At the end of the day, you know, the fear of clowns is understandable because they used to eat us and they've dominated. <laughs> you know, they they were fearsome, horrible creatures. That's, if you go on my YouTube channel, I've got plenty of depictions of what they would have looked like, you know, um, renditions and they, they, yeah, they, they scarred us mentally. So people are naturally scared of things that look like that. Perfectly understandable, but mm-hmm. their spirits now, they're dead, you know, and you have the authority to cast them out at the end of the day. So just, just remember that, you know, and amen. Amen. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to encourage all of our listeners to check out your YouTube channel, Understanding Conspiracy, and also you have a Telegram channel that's really cool, and I love what you do when you join the Telegram, because I just joined it recently, and you're like, hey, tell us how you woke up, and uh, it's really an opportunity for, for Christians to share their, their, you know, their coming to the Lord, you know, and, uh, and there's a lot of people there that, that aren't, you know, necessarily believers. And, um, you know, they're interested in these things. So it's a great opportunity and it's a wonderful, um, I mean, you probably couldn't have dreamt up, um, a life like this being something that you would be so, uh, (laughs) buried in. Right. I did. No, I, I get it. I didn't, I didn't grow up thinking I'd be the guy talking about clowns on podcasts. I, I, I did not plan for this. This is not. My ass. I don't even care about clowns. This is the thing. I'm actually not like somebody who I, I don't think about clowns regularly. Yeah. I never did before. I never even gave them a second thought, really. Um, it, it's just ended up being this thing that I've kind of been given to, to deal with. You know? yeah. and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thankful for it. You know, it's a blessing in many ways. Um, and it's fun. It's definitely fun to to unpack this one. Yeah. Uh, for sure. But yeah, the Telegram group's a great place if you, if you want to come on there and, and just share your journey. Um, and it's just, that's all it's for, you know, I'm, I'm not pushing any belief system on anybody in there. Um, we have people of all sorts of beliefs in there. Obviously I, I don't make it a secret what my, what my beliefs are. Yeah. Um, I, I don't encourage anybody to put anybody down for sharing their own personal journey. Um, I've had over a hundred responses to that one comment alone where I'm asking, how did you wake up? And it's, it's fascinating. It's just fascinating to see the same journey everyone's on. Yeah. So it's the same story, you know, and, and in the end, you know, you will all discover if you're not quite there yet that it's all in the biblical perspective. That's yeah. where you will end up at the end. If you're truly looking, um, that's where you will eventually <laughs> settle. You'll get there, you know, and that's where it leads. It all yeah. leads to that one point. Um, 
and a lot of people have not realized that and some people are on the journey but it's also a fun place to share any clowns in the wild you find man well that's awesome well thank you so much paul i again like we'll, uh, we're gonna have to have you on again and um you know i'm i'm in the telegram group i'm in there i pop in every couple of days and just check what people are doing and um, i don't interact too much but i do observe it and uh look at it and so we'll we'll uh, have you back in and man i hope you can finish that book soon and um, <laughs> we will put all of your contact in our show notes here so anybody listening you can find his youtube channel and his telegram all of that stuff we'll put that in the show notes but um mm-hmm. again man we appreciate so much you spending time with us unpacking this insane uh <laughs> concept which is really cool yeah thank you you're welcome no problem guys thanks for having me thanks brother we'll talk to you soon all right thanks Yeah, bye now. Thanks for listening to the All Out War podcast today. If you had a blast, then we'd love to have you back for another episode. So please subscribe and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram at All Out War Podcast or on Twitter at AOWCast. These episodes are also available on YouTube unless they contain a little too much truth. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.